I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy this. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 97 on Clark Ashton Smith's Zikarf. With me today is that vampiric flower person, Hoy. Hello, I am indeed the monster of that prophecy. (laughs) And uh, with us today, we are joined by writer, teacher, translator, and two-time Hugo finalist, Cora Bullert. Cora, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Hello, Cora. It's, it's a real treat to have you on. So, Cora, tell us um, about your history with gaming and how you got into speculative fiction. I've actually been a speculative fiction fan and reader long before I was a gamer, and I only was a gamer very briefly. Uh, basically, well, um, I first discovered um, media, it was science fiction mostly, mostly as a small child uh, via Star Trek on TV. Star Wars in the cinema, which I was not allowed to watch because I was too young to go. <laughs> go And um, then later, the Captain Future anime and Long Patrouille Orion, which is a German science fiction show. And then when I was uh, about 14, 15, 16, I discovered, wow, there are books just like those movies I like to watch. And yes, <laughs> I, was a, I was a speculative fiction reader and I read mostly in English. Because um, the German translations, I'm from Germany, were not very good at the time. And a lot of things were not available. Bill, and yes, my history with gaming is, um, is I've, I've gamed a few times in high school. And uh, my high school actually had a gaming club, club which was uh, several of my friends were members. And one couple which met in that gaming club, club in that RPG club, is still married today. Today, oh, so yes, they have, a ba- they have a, a daughter who's about 10 or 11 years old now. So yes, um, yes, that's the most uh, I think lasting <laughs> effect of that gaming club. And um, then um, I was I was on the first one of the first student exchanges, school, school student exchanges with what was then still the Soviet Union, because um, mm. our our town had a partner city in. Latvia, which is, of course, today independent and a Baltic state. And back then, what it was a part of the Soviet Union. And I was one of the first exchange students to go there for two weeks. And um, then they sent us two weeks. We got then students from Latvia back. And we went by train. And um, it's a very, very long train ride. It took three days to get from train. Oh, wow. Yeah, three days train ride. Right. And um, I think half a day was spent at the Soviet-Polish border because um, the train gorge in the Soviet Union is uh, narrower, so they had to change the tra- train gorges. And it was a really long trip. And one of the boys on the trip, his name was Markus, he was a gamer and he had, uh, he had brought um, the Dark Eye with him. The Dark Eye is not that well known in the US, I think, but it was, it's the main RPG in Germany came out in 1984 mm-hmm. and it came out, it was published by a mainstream 
gaming company. So you could buy the Dark Eye in every toy store, department store. You didn't have to have a specialist shop. So the Dark Eye was what everybody played. <laughs> right. I think that's a much bigger market share, I think, from what I hear, than actually D&D ever was in its time in Germany, right? In terms of its D&D, uh, I don't popularity. think anybody played d and Some people, specialists, played D&D, but... Um, the mainstream people all played the Dark Eyes simply because you could buy it everywhere. It was also, it had uh, ads on TV and everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Now, you had mentioned that you're primarily reading uh, English translations, but I know that one of my favorite speculative fiction books as a kid was a German book uh, that I was reading an English translation of, which was The Never Ending Story. Oh, yes. I read that too. As a, and uh, Mike, Michael Ende, I read, uh, I read The Never Ending Story, Momo. Jim Knopf and and Lucas the Train Engine Driver, which is um, for younger children, which I don't think ever it has an English translation, but it's not that big, never been that big. So yes, I've read all of the Michael Ende books as a kid and loved them. Yeah, I was just curious. German science fiction. I mean, Germany has you know a strong gaming scene, especially board games and other, but. There's not a lot of German science fiction in translation. I think basically the Per Rodin books are the only things I can think of <laughs> yeah. that are like German science fiction that's come over to to the English speaking world in any well, quantity. Per Rodin is, of course, well, that's also um, that's pretty much something everybody has read because uh, they're actually the little magazines. I wait a minute. I have one here if you want to see one. Yeah, this is apparently new Per Rodin. <laughs> this is what they actually look like. They are little floppy yeah. magazines. There are also other. And they've been going for like Some 50 years, them, right? Yeah, um, 60, 60. 60 years. <laughs> yeah, it's wow. almost 60. I think it's um, I think it has its 60th anniversary this later this year. It started in September sometime. And right. yeah, so, so yeah, I was just curious if there was a lot of German science fiction that you wish was available in sort of the world market that, you know, like there's some major works that are like, you know, if you read this, it would change your world. But unfortunately, it's only available in German at the moment. Um, you know? There isn't really that much. Our science fiction and fantasy market was mostly... A lot of it was mostly translation because um, the publishers would rather translate a proven bestseller from the U.S. than than take a chance on a German unknown. That makes sense. And are there any um, particular novels or or story collections that you would recommend that people read for inspiration for their gaming? Yes. (laughs) We have a a recording bombing cat. The cat is making a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a little cat break <laughs> yeah. well um, I think well basically um, I think um, I think any of the Appendix N books are good inspiration for gaming and just good in general and um, I'm a big fan of the older pubs of the older pub era science fiction and fantasy so yes even if it's not listed in Appendix N just um, just take a look. The Internet Archive has pretty much any every issue of Weird Tales or Planet Stories and so on. There's a lot of good stuff to read there. Is there a specific like Appendix N author or pulp author that you are especially a fan of? Uh, well, I love Lee Brackett's work. She's wonderful, cool, and uh, of course she's um, she's of course listed in Appendix N. And yes, well, you can't go wrong with Robert E. Howard or Fritz Leiber, and. <laughs> Whom I can pronounce correctly, yes. The German name. (laughs) (laughs) C.L. Moore is not listed in Appendix N, which I think is a terrible oversight, but yes, um, she's also great. And of course, if you, and she's of course someone who also has one of the, with Lyril of Jory, one of the first female sport and sorcery heroines. Mm -hmm. And yes, another one, one of my discoveries 
when I did my retro Hugo project last year and read a lot of stories from the from 1944, was um, Alison V. Harding. She was a contemporary, she was also publishing in Weird Tales and was a contemporary horror writer, had a lot of um, stories about um, haunted uh, machinery and so on. And yes, I was really impressed by her. Dorothy Quick is another one to read. She's more, she's more of a gothic, a gothic story type. So it's, um, with stories about past lives and so on, and um, she's also really, really good. So yes, a lot. There's gold in the old pubs. So Alison Harding is we have not heard of, and Darcy Quick, terrific. So we should definitely look Internet Archive, Archive.org. Uh, They're definitely Gutenberg. on the Internet Archive. Terrific. And Alison V. Harding, there's also a collection out uh, which came out I think last year, but it's not easy to find outside the U.S. But in the U.S. you can you can buy it. There we Very go. cool. And uh, thank you for those awesome recommendations. So now we're going to go ahead and start chatting about Clark Ashton Smith's Zikarf. Um, Cora, which edition of the book are you working with? Well, um, I try to actually say only is the one edition, the fantasy, the adult fantasy edition from the 1970s. I try to procure a copy, but um, the copy, I found a reasonable price one for like $20, but uh, the shipping was about twice that. So, um, oh, no. <laughs> yes. So, because um, a lot of um, the Amazon and Internet, uh, net, um, English books in Germany, hardcover books, and I think this one was a hardcover, is, were barely available. Bill, you only got paperbacks and uh, they were very expensive. So, yes, I looked up the. So, I have these two nice Clark Ashton Smith editions. One mm -hmm. is uh, the Penguin Classics edition, the Dark Eidolon and other fantasies. The other is the Fantasy Masterworks edition which had some of the stories. And then I found that the whole book is likely illegally on the Internet Archive, so I read the introduction and the other stories there. Otherwise, I would simply have hunted the stories down in weird tales, and um, I think one was from Wonder Stories and one from Astounding. So yes, I'm, uh, because um, 50 euros was a bit too much for, or $50 <laughs> was a bit too much for the book with shipping and everything. That's, that is a hard Absolutely. ask. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, yep. And um, I've got the Valentine adult fantasy oh, yes, paperback here. Oh, yes, you have here. it. But yeah. there is yeah. a paperback. I thought it was only yeah. hardcover. Yeah. Nope, it's paperback. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. Yeah, and it's got this um, this gorgeous cover by Gervasio Gallardo, which yeah. has like the little vampire flower women. <laughs> yeah, yep, we're, we're, maze, we're on the, the planet Sikarf. Yep. yep, we have the actual mm -hmm. maze. Yep, yep. Oh, Corey's yes. got it as well. Yeah. Yeah, so you really got the... Yes, I've seen the cover online and thought, okay, that's a really great cover. A very, very yeah. early 70s psychedelic, and it absolutely fits the book. As a little bit of, um, reminds me a little bit of Magritte also, you know, his style. It also reminds me a little bit of, um, who is that guy who did the Vivian Girls? Do you know who I'm talking about? He was that, um, that sh he, was, he was this like janitor in Chicago that when he died, they found this like 10,000-page book he had written and the, all of these paintings about these little girls called the Vivian Girls. Um, mm. I'm forgetting what his name is, but um, it also kind Henry of reminds da Henry me Darger? of Darger. Henry Darger, yeah. It has yeah, kind of a Darger vibe as well. Right, he was an outsider artist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very um, cool. And as I was saying, Jeff, also before in the book club, I was reading a lot from the um, the uh, collected, you know, with the five the Nightshade series because there's alternate texts um of the, the Clark Ashton Smith stories, some of which were reflect like, you know, he had edits that were recommended to him by, you know, Weird Tales or whatever. And so in order to get them into the pulps, he had to make some edits. 
some of which he was happy to do, at least to sell the story, some of which he was very upset about. But it's interesting, um, you know, textual history that way. So very cool. Perfect. So now we can go ahead and move on to our Hygaxian word of the day. And as Cora mentioned before we started recording, you've got a Hygaxian uh candidate on like every every paragraph there's a new Hygaxian word candidate when you're reading Clark Ashton Smith but the word that I chose this week is effluvium effluvium and specifically the reason why I chose it is it is coupled with a word that we have formerly used in as as one of our Hygaxian words for our episode on the moon pool our word was malefic so we're going to see both of these words together on page 107 Faintly at first, but more strongly as they went on, there came to them an insidious feeling of somnolence, such as might have been caused by mephitical effluvia. And um, effluvia is the plural of effluvium, which is an unpleasant or harmful order, odor, secretion, or discharge. So that is my candidate for the Hygaxian word of the day. Cora, rumor has it you've also got a candidate or two. Um, yes, well, um, if I only get a word, I'll take phylactery, which is a talisman or reliquary, and actually a thing in D&D, so of course it's a, it shows up several times. I've noted it for being on page 40 of the adult fantasy, fantasy edition. And another one, there's a phrase I really, really loved. Laokoans um, of struggle and torture. This is from... Uh, the maze of Maldred, and it refers to trees, very twisted trees. And um, it's a Laokoan was um, it's a figure from Greek mythology. He appears in the Iliad, um, and he's a citizen of Troy who warned the, Tro- warned the Trojans of the horse and said, "Don't let this, that thing in the city burn it down, down," which would have changed the entire outcome of the of the Trojan war. But yes, they didn't listen to him. And also for his troubles, the gods, it's not quite sure whether it was Poseidon or Athena. Athena, they sent uh, some snakes to strangle him and his uh, and his two sons. And there's a famous statue depicting this event, which is in the collection of the Vatican Museum. Museum, which is really, you can also see it online, but it's even better if you see it in person. And yes, I simply think it's a lovely, whenever I see a twisted tree now, I think, oh, look, there's a laukorn of struggle and torture. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, Hoy, it looked like you had something you wanted to add. Oh, um, there was all sorts of words for serum. I forget there was a word, but there was a word that he used which, uh, when he was talking about like the sunlight. And it specifically is, um, it, it's so interesting, like how morbid he is. It's morbid and beautiful. It's basically the serum. It's like when you have a wound, it's not bloody, but it's like the clear fluid, but there's some blood in it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, after an infection <laughs> or something like that. And it's so typical of Clark Fashion Smith oh, yes. to both have like, the morbid, the decay, <laughs> and the beautiful together. You know, this is um, also on my list. Getting... I, this is yeah. also that one's also on my list. And also with this actually refers to a sunrise underlined. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's just so he's so perfect in that regard. So <laughs> And now we can go ahead and step on into the library. And Cora, what did you think of this collection of stories? Well, it's been a time, been a while since I last read Clark Ashton Smith, and uh, my first experience with him was um, I bounced off a bit, but that was partly because a person who insisted I absolutely had to read Clark Ashton Smith basically said, like, if you don't read, read him and don't like him, you're too stupid, too stupid to understand oh. him. So yes, uh, 
said absolutely not Clark Ashton Smith's fault, who was about who had been dead for forty years or so by the time that happened. But um, but yeah, so I wasn't really disposed to so. But um, I noticed that uh, a lot of the stories must have stuck with me because I remembered uh, parts um, parts of them. Of and um, nowadays I liked him a lot better. He is. I think best employed in small doses. So reading a lot of his stories one after another, it gets a bit too gloomy because he's quite dark. He can be quite dark, and also his style is um, is very very baroque ornate um, style. Some style um, takes some getting used to uh, used to. But um, I enjoyed him. A, I enjoyed him a lot more this time. Time and yes, I'm really glad I got to revisit him. And I think your point is well taken. I think like Clark Ash Smith benefits from reading like one or two stories a day, really getting the time to like wash over you and think about it and then come back to the, and say, oh, I want more of that the next day, but not like five stories in one day, I think. Yeah, it reminds me of when I was a kid and I used to like obsessively watch horror movies on HBO and I would watch horror movies on HBO all the time. And I remember... I once saw a horror movie on HBO and I forgot what it's called, but I remember at the very end of the movie, the killer wins and everybody died. And I was like, what? Like I had never seen that happen in a horror movie before. And if that's what horror movies were all the time, then it would be a real, real bummer of a genre. But having that happen occasionally was really thrilling. And so I can imagine if you're like a weird tales reader and occasionally you get one of those real dark Clark Ashton Smith stories where the hero doesn't survive, it's actually a real thrill. Yes, it's um, because it's so different from all of the, well, um, the Lovecraft heroes also don't always survive or they, or they go mad. True. But um, <laughs> yes. if you have... Uh, yeah, that's example, the best case scenario. Yes. <laughs> if, you have, have, uh, if you have Howard or um, C.L. Moore or any of the, of the other people, People, Seabury Quinn, you usually have heroes who survive and often come back. And then you have Smith, and yes, it's just often similar stories, but the hero doesn't survive. Actually, I was surprised with the final story. So here, um, now I forgot the name of the thing, the monster from the prophecy, that the, he, that the protagonist did not die, because the only protagonist who did not die before that was was the one from the Flower Women, and that was Maldrep, and he was the villain right. of the first story. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, also in the vault of Yovambis, the guy survives, yeah. but he is very much a love. It's a Lovecraftian style of survival where he's like now basically mad and desperately wants to return to these things that are going to eat him. And the point you make, both of you make great points. I think the um, the interesting thing with Clark Ashton Smith, again, is when he does have a recurring characters, it is almost always a character who would be characterized as a villain like Mild Web, Right. Um, so I think. Um, I can't. Were there recurring characters in yet? I think there were. Or it's a recurring character or two in the Zothique stories, like maybe the Necromancers. Um, and oh yeah, I thought you meant in this collection. But I yeah, think there's one other. Right. Some of, uh, yeah. I forgot the name. It's an adventurer, from kind of sort of sorcery story who sort of uh, survives but is maimed or something and comes back in the later story. Right. Oh, uh, um, the thief. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, thief. and those are the, the Hyperborea stories, right? Right. Right. Um, what's his name? Uh, Satan Prozeros. Yes, 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 yes. That's him. Yeah. Yes. Uh, So generally, he he seems to be, and even Satan Prozeros is a thief, so he's not really a true hero. It's just a little bit more of an anti-hero. So you can see that where his his sympathies lie. Um, 
Well, and also, like, it was funny. I forget who was saying this on our Patreon book club before this, but somebody was saying that Mald Webb was actually the good guy in that story because he saved those flower women. And I was like, yeah, but those flower women are, like, vampire flower women. So he just saved, like, one group of bad people from another group of bad people. So I don't actually know that he's really a hero. (laughs) He just picked a side and, and succeeded. Okay, the vampire flower women are probably prettier than the reptilian <laughs> Exactly that. Exactly that. He made an aesthetic choice. Exactly. Oh, and I, I believe it's also Mald Webb who says that the word evil means nothing to him. Or maybe somebody else said that. But somebody no, in this collection said the, the word... Um, Vis of Mal, the, Vis of Mal, the, the, the alien sorcerer who kidnapped the <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Because he needed yeah. a monster. But I think that that's, that also um, really kind of ties into Mald Webb, because although Mald Webb didn't say that, I could see Mald Webb saying that. And he I think you all are 100% not. right. Good, bad, that doesn't matter. What matters is, like, he was bored and he's looking for entertainment. And, of course, the thing that he's going to use to entertain himself is to save beauty, <laughs> not the ugly things. <laughs> yeah, just and the general vibe of, of, of uh, you know, um, sort of decadence. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think he's he's got a... a Oddly, even though he's from California, which is the newest part of the country in a way, um, he's got oddly the most European outlook out of the three major, uh, the, the big three, you know, Robert E. Howard and, and Lovecraft in a way. Um, one of the, um, the intros, uh, little intros are by, um, Clark, by Lynn Carter said something along the lines of that he was very influenced by Charles Baudelaire and that was something like, oh, yes, because he is very, and Baudelaire's, one of his most famous works was a single collection of poetry called Le Fleur du Mal, The Flowers of Evil. Mm. And yes, we have a lot of flowers oh. of evil here, sometimes quite yeah. literally <laughs> vampire flower women and all uh, demon, demonic flowers. So yeah, actually, I thought also these stories feel more like um, some sort of decadent, art nouveau, turn of the, the century poetry. They feel like... Um, not, they don't feel like something from the 1930s and an American pulp magazine. If you don't know that, know where they're from, if you just give them to someone, they would probably say, okay, this is some kind of obscure French, um, French writer from the decadent, decadent era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's probably why he is not as popular as Robert E. Howard or Lovecraft? Because it's more of a sense of atmosphere than, say, plot or character the way that you know Lovecraft or uh Howard or you know have have more emphasis on I guess it's probably part of it it takes some time to get into him because it's he's very atmospheric and um, he's probably more not that Howard and uh, Lovecraft aren't atmospheric but um, Smith is a lot stronger than then and also there's less action action and um, a lot of these Smith stories strike me as they remind me of other stories, whether from weird tales or not from weird tales. Tales like, for example, The Mice of Maldweb, it starts out like, oh, this is a bit like a Conan story, except uh, yeah, that Piglari, um, the hero, gets turned into an ape at the end. That never happened to Conan. <laughs> and then there's, uh, there's um, the one with uh, with uh, with the uh, hobby astronomer, that's a bit like um, John Carter, like the John Carter stories by Burroughs, except, yes, okay, he survives, but he's depressed and he dies on the other planet, planet and so on. And um, they're all quite reminiscent of other, but um, usually it's like, okay, if those stories had ended badly, badly, so 
guess this is, that's probably why people have a bit more problem with with him because he's not. Mm-hmm. Really, there's no one you can really root for. Like you can root for Conan or Girl of Glory or even the Love. Well, okay, you can't really root for the Lovecraft protagonist except for Skildu. But <laughs> no, this I think you're you have a good point there. I also feel like it's easy to draw the line from Clark Ashton Smith to the people who he has inspired. You know, obviously, like the Jack Vance inspiration is very strong. I really, really see Dying Earth in so much of his Zothique writing and so much in the writing of this. Um, you know, and specifically in the Doom of Antarian, we've got this like giant bloated red dying sun. But also, one thing that I thought was interesting about the Doom of Antarian is that also that to me felt like it was a literary um, precedent to Elric as well, mm-hmm. because here we have when he, when he goes into the body of Antarian and he and his lover are you know, going to experience their final month together, that felt very much like um, Elric and Cimarill running off to like spend their time together, even though they know that their romance is doomed, but also in the um, doom of Antarian, they are the final leaders of this like decadent race of emperors. And it, it felt very Elric to me as well. I also noted some links to um, C.L. Moore's um, Northwest Smith and Hero of Lori stories because uh, the Martian ones are, they are quite stylistically similar to the Northwest Smith stories of C.L. Moore, except that, uh, and also the one with uh, also the maze of Maldweb. Maldweb collects beautiful women. And there's a C.L. Moore story, Black Thirst, which is also a kind of psychic vampire who collects um, beautiful women and uh, runs afoul of um, Northwest Smith. So, mm-hmm. and um, of course, the weird, land, weird dreamy landscapes, Gerald um, of Lauri often found herself caught in weird dreamy landscapes, uh, which she had to transverse to find some kind of um, magical item. And interestingly, um, the walls the world of the Wombus, um, with these weird black cow-like things, alien things which attack the, the um, expedition, this reminded me of um, Fritz Leiber's story, story um, The Sunken Land, where Fafat and Grey Mauser, Mauser finds a kind of, uh, well, the, the Nevonian Atlantis, and uh, in the end, all of the other, other, well, what other kind of Vikings, raiders, they're all attacked by these uh, Things are described as they look like cloaks or blankets, and only for far escaped. So um, yeah, so you can really see the, and of course the winds and uh, also Elric influence is quite really quite notable. So yeah, see. Mm-hmm. And I think her um, the uh, Lee Brackett's sort of vision of like an ancient sort of dry Mars, is, I think, is also very much. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure she read Smith as well, and and Definitely. had some of that also. Also, Lee Brackett has a lot of archaeologist heroes, and here we also have a lot of archaeologists. Only that if you're an archaeologist in the Lee Brackett story, you probably like the Indiana Jones of Mars, and here you just get, get killed or have your eyes, eyes uh, poked <laughs> out or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, do you know if the version of The Dweller in the Gulf you read is the one that's got the Chalmers character shoehorned in, or no? I have the Chalmers. You have the Chalmers? Okay. Because that was one thing I was uh, I was reading along with the text um, in, in, in the paperback, but I was listening to an audiobook recording of it at the same time, and suddenly there was a major deviation from the audiobook and the text, 
And then I discovered that there's this whole like section with, with this Chalmers character that's kind of shoehorned in there. And uh, Hoy, I believe you have kind of a, an explanation for that. Right. Um, so he had submitted to, I believe, Astounding. And so there was Hugo Grinsback. Um, and Astounding at that point was uh, uh, no, a science fiction uh, magazine. No, Astounding was uh, not Grinsback. was amazing. Uh, amazing. Amazing. So he had submitted to Amazing. Um, uh, in any case, uh, they really wanted more of a science fiction adventure type story. And he and so they really asked for some sort of at least pseudoscience explanation of what these things were. And so he he wrote the Chalmers character to sort of shoehorn that in to, to make it more nominal because it's nominally on Mars. It's not one of his weird, decadent, non-existent planets. So they said, oh, if it's on Mars, it's got to be sort of real. Right. And so he put that in. Um, it doesn't really help the story. It doesn't hurt the story tremendously, though. So it's OK. No. Yeah. So it doesn't. But it, it was interesting seeing that th- that they were so different. Yeah. And then it was it was cool learning about why the difference was in the when we had our patron book club discussion before this, which is I thought would be which is why I thought it would be interesting to bring it up in the actual episode as well, mm-hmm. uh, because both versions are written by Clark Ashton Smith. But this Chalmers stuff is really kind of an editor saying, nah, I need you to make this a little bit more palatable. <laughs> Yeah, right, Shamas right. is kind of an info dump bot. He shows up and uh, info dumps like, okay, now I'm going to tell you the story about these people, the Vorhees or Yohis, which later reappear in the, in another story. Story, but um, but he isn't really necessary. But um, he's kind of an info dump bot. Also, yes, mm-hmm. inter- what I found interesting is that um, the Demon of the Flower was actually published in Astounding, which surprised me because it absolutely does not feel like a story from Astounding, but of course it was pre-Campbell Astounding. That was Astounding of the early 30s when it still had had Lion Beetles on the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, there's some other minor changes, like the Vault, vault of Yovambis. Um, the original version he wrote, the postscript is actually the framing device. And then the version that's in this the Sikharf book, uh, they actually moved to the end. And some, in some ways, I think it makes it stronger to have that the uh, that as the postscript rather than as the beginning of the story. So, I agree, definitely. Yeah. That, that's what, that's an editorial choice that I actually thought was a smart one. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned that your primary gaming history is with um, is it called the Dark Eye? The Dark Eye, the Schwarze Auge in German. Eye. It's not literally translated. It's a black eye, but of course, it would sound silly in English, so they called it the Dark Eye. The Dark Eye. Okay, and. Um, while you were reading uh, this Clark Ashton Smith collection, did you feel like there was cool stuff that you could see um, like thrown into either uh, the Dark Eye game or a D&D game? Anything that you feel like would be stealable? Uh, I mean, you could basically wholesale steal all of the, the strange planets and mazes and gardens full of monster flowers that's, uh, and the, the, the underground caverns of Mars. Those can be adapted to pretty much any game. The Dark Eye is, um, I think, with gaming mechanics, is closest to GURPS, by the way. Oh, okay. Yes. So it's, um, but they, it was, they were inspired by, D and, by D&D. And it's less, I think, weird tales. It's more Tolkien and uh, fairy tale and mythology inspired than, uh, than less weird tales inspired because one of the guys who made it is, uh, who was one of the co-creators, Hans-Joachim Alpers, is on record for that he's not a sword and sorcery fan. He said some. He's a, he's a good. He was a good guy, and he was local. He came from the same town as me, but um, he was he was very very wrong about Conan. So he wasn't a fan. So it's also it also had more of a fairy tale feel feel the, the Dark Eye at least back in the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
And let's say you wanted to um, tell a story in um, in a gaming environment that felt more Clark Ashton Smithy in the sense that like you're going to have the the high fantasy and magic that you might have in Conan, but you're going to have that Lovecraftian um, ending where your best case scenario is you're going to go mad, but you're most likely going to die. Do you feel like D&D is a system that um, that works for that? Or do you feel like you have to go to a different game system to um pursue that style of play um, i'm not sure if D really i mean mostly the D characters survive very few people some characters die but D is not really that these days not really that known for killing of characters the dark eye wasn't really really either either so my best friend at the time spent i think several at least one day of gaming transformed into a pumpkin because uh, <laughs> he, was, yeah, he was stupid there was a kind of trick uh, Kind of, uh, kind of tricked out uh, a door with a kind of trap, and she she went in, and I said, "Don't do that. That's a stupid idea. Don't open the door." And she did, and she got transformed into a pumpkin. And my character had to carry carry her around. Luckily, not really, <laughs> of course. But yes, that's, uh, that's that the one okay. thing. One thing I really, really clearly remember of that game. Game, but um, okay, of course, um, of course. Um, it depends if, if people generally gamers don't really like their characters getting killed unless it's something like Traveler where it's normal that characters die. Mm-hmm. Die, but um, right. of course, if in GM wanted to be really mean, you could do the Clark Ashton Smithian way and have them. This is really the meanest thing about some of the stories. They almost succeed, and then at the very last moment, um, the monster gets them. <laughs> right, right, or, or, or yeah, they or whatever their plans, they come to not like in the demon in the flower, right? He he yes. comes this you know epic plan, goes this epic quest to meet this other demon, and you know doesn't ask idea. the one key question, and <laughs> uh, he almost succeeds, and yes, he kills the monster flower, and hooray, it doesn't work. His girlfriend gets transformed into the next monster flower. <laughs> and um, hoy, how about you? Is there something that you think would be particularly fun to steal from this collection? Oh, I mean, I think the whole uh, it, it's. Uh, I think the common theme is like, what can't you steal? Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the the overall thing with Smith is not so much a specific um, uh, plot device or monster. I think the overall appeal of Smith is the atmosphere, right? And so it's can you convey that atmosphere in um, what kind of game can you play where that atmosphere is welcome, right? Um, and it can be in classic D&D. Um, and I think even earlier versions of D&D did have that sort of weirdo, like, you know, your characters might not survive and kind of doom-laden. Uh, obviously, it could be Call of Cthulhu. Um, the members of the book group did mention Numenera. There's a Dying Earth RPG. Um, but I also think that it could be, and your, your question was, like, could you have a character have those endings, those doomed endings? I think you could even do a traditional D&D campaign, but leading towards and have it get progressively darker and so that um, you're not constantly killing off first level characters. You get the characters get to have their full story arc, but it's when they're 10th or 12th level that they encounter these things that they've always been able to beat in the past. And you say, well, okay, you, you, you foreshadow it with the players say, okay, yeah, we can take this in a new direction, but I want you to be aware <laughs> this is how this game might go. So, um, so that, that's a couple of my thoughts. I mean, but I mean, individual things that I mean, Mal Dweb as as uh, you know a DCC patron or the big you know yeah. or, as, or, as, or as the villain of the campaign uh, that would be great. The whole uh, kingdom that 
the demon of the flower set in. I think that would be amazing as to have like you just go over the mountains and suddenly you're in this weird lush kingdom where all the plant life is dangerous to you and like you know the evolutionary pyramid is invert inverted whereby animals are dominated by plants. I think that's incredible, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. I like that a lot. One of the things that I really was drawn to is um I liked how um I'm sorry, which story is it that he's turned into an ape? It's the first um, one. The first one. Mesa Maltweb. I I really liked that he first shows up to this adventuring site and he's fighting these eight men and he's like, you know, killing them off, but then he ends up becoming one of them. And I thought it would be kind of a really fun that like to me that sounded like a fun twist in a DD story where like, you know, you've got your 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 cliche like villagers are missing. And you go off and you find these like crazy monster men and you like you kill off a bunch of them and then you go deep into the dungeon and then you discover that there's like this entity that's creating the monster men and the villagers who've gone missing were actually the monster men that you've just killed. And some of the PCs might get turned into one of these monster men in 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 the end of this dungeon. There's something about that that I thought was really satisfying. Mm-hmm. That would For work. Sure. And of course, uh, you could also still use a character because they're not dead. They're just an ape. Right. Exactly. And, also, and you can also maybe say that they're a curse. Yeah. So you right. can maybe seek a ha- right. have the curse right. reversed. Right. And not only is he an ape, he's still got his human head, right? So yeah, it's almost he's like very a, like Homer he's Simpson. He's still aware of what he is. Tiglani is still aware of what he is, what, uh, right. unlike it's, the other ape men. Right, right. Yes. It's very Homer Simpson as Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also noticed that it was a lot of, there was a lot about evolution in this story and also about devolution. I mean, the ape men were obviously a case, also the the Maldweb and the lizard people. The, he, the lizard people yeah. have evolved to intelligence and Maldweb just uh, de-evolved them. And right. there's actually a lot of horror of evolution in weird tales in general. You also find it in the Conan stories, which um, when sure. I recently right. reread them surprised me simply because I thought, okay, you could probably, considering where Howard came from, from Texas in the 1920s and 30s, you could probably knock on a door in cross, on any door in cross plains in Texas today and Ask people if they believe in evolution, and you would a lot of them would probably say no. So that's really surprising that he um, that you had to. I think it also probably explains why the theory of evolution was so controversial because uh, apparently the people are not so much bothered that they came from apes, but uh, they're afraid that they might devolve into apes, which literally happens mm. to Tiglari and the maze of Maldweb. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think the interesting thing though is that. Um that Clark Ashton Smith plays with this trope, but I don't think he's has that same level of obsession that Howard does with that because Howard's theme is constantly about regression and devolution of, of, you know, mankind. Whereas, um, for, for, uh, Smith, it's just like another one of his things about how things decay and the beauty of decay. Right. Yes. Whereas how how is genuinely concerned about like do we lose our vitality? Do we go backwards? You know. And you know, I I've heard some people argue that they don't think Gygax read Clark Ashton Smith, which I personally think is BS. I think he definitely read Clark yeah. Ashton Smith. And it was interesting because I also felt like there were some things in here that felt straight up like this got turned into a thing in D anD. d Like when um when our main dude, I'm forgetting his name, um, Tiglary. To glory, when Tiglari starts fighting the mirror image of the uh, of Malt Web, I'm like, sure, 
he's fighting he's fighting in a literal like mirrored room but it felt like the mirror image spell because mm-hmm. like he cast this spell and because of that he's now fighting like mirror images of this dude so that felt like the mirror image spell and then also the big monsters that we've got that are eating off everybody's uh heads in the vault of yon um yovambi yeah. feels very much like the the classic D monster the dark mantle which mm-hmm. falls down from a ceiling uh covers your face and eats it away like it's the stuff is like literally right out of the pages of clark ashton smith I actually think that he probably forgot listing Smith in Appendix N because um, it it also would be strange if he had read all of the others but hadn't read Smith. Right. I think, yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple reasons and and everyone has different, different versions of why, why he was not included. Um, I think it may have also been that he certainly read it, but it might've been an aesthetic choice at that point where AD&D was now starting to be marketed as a sort of, um, family it wasn't yet a kid's game they didn't have that but a family friendly game um and you know there's just so much like uh you know uh, necrophilia and all these other things that you know explicitly right in and so it's like yeah maybe i don't want to like point people in this direction they'll find clark ashton smith anyway but yeah this might also be why more was left why cl more was left out because of course i mean her debut story chamblo there's about a two and a half or three page tentacle sex scene okay it's uh, kind of euphemistic (laughs) but it is uh, but that's basically what it is and of course uh course and also um the weird rape revenge things in the Girl of Laurie stories, that's again something you probably wouldn't want point, want to point very young readers, especially with conservative parents at. Right, right. I mean, the whole premise of the first Girl of Laurie story is that she goes into the underworld <laughs> to avoid being raped, right? That's, yes. That's, yeah. <laughs> so. And that makes sense to me and kind of rings true with what I think of as Gary, because uh, Gary has that very American sense of like, it's fine that we're blowing up people's heads, yeah. but like no you sex. cannot t- no sex. <laughs> yeah. Sex does not exist in this world, <laughs> which is completely different from what we had in Germany. I mean, we also did oh, have yeah. the, because um, here sex is okay. Um, if the sex gets weird, with if it gets uh, violent or tentacles, then it's problematic. But sex is okay. It's nudity is okay, but violence is very bad. Conan was. Um, yeah. In the 1980s, Conan was basically the epitome of Feather with Rambo and um, and uh, what was this? and uh, Rocky, all of which are right. not really that that and mostly known by the movie, but it was the epitome of really terrible, violent American trash, which will rot your mind and turn you into a murderous Nazi or something like that. <laughs> now, looking at uh, the, these Clark Ashton Smith stories, do you feel like you have any world building takeaways from this collection? Well, um, my initial thought was after having all of those uh, monster flowers, I was like, wow, you should really, I should really write a story about monsters, flowers, or trees at some point, some point, because, uh, because, yes, uh, the monster's vegetation was really the, the most, uh, was one of them, there was a lot of notable things, uh, things. Another good world uh, for world building, uh, of course, uh, also the many, okay, underground caverns and dungeons are quite normal, both in world building, also for D&D, but, uh, but all of the Martian stories all have have some kind of underground city, vault, or vault, and um, those are also quite fascinating settings. So yes, there's a lot of there's a lot I think you can take here for world building. I'm pretty sure there will be some kind of monster flower stories somewhere in my future. 
Yeah, I feel like, you know, with with Howard and Lovecraft, we get a lot of like the ugly is scary. Ugly and gross is scary. And like we see that a lot in horror in general. Mm -hmm. And then with Clark Ashton Smith, like the beautiful is scary. And that and that's not like a metaphor for like, because also in horror movies, you'll see like beautiful is scary if it's like a sexy lady. Like a sexy lady can be like a monster. But like beautiful flowers and like lush scenery and, you know, just kind of like laying around enjoying food and drink. Like these are the things that can turn into like scenes of horror in a Clark Ashton Smith story. Right. And also just the stuff that is normally horrific is described very aesthetically in Clark Ashton Smith. Mm. I wonder if he's also maybe, um, I wonder if Clive Barker also had read him because Clive Barker, that's one of his, his strengths, right? Oh, yeah. To talk about the inversion of beauty and horror, right? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'd be curious to know that as well because if 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 he hadn't, it's they they seem to be at least coming from a very similar aesthetic viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Actually, what these stories remind me of a lot of is um is art artwork, whether sculptures or statues, also also drawings of the Art Nouveau era era. A lot of mm-hmm. they have also these very lush vegetation, often beautiful women turning into flowers and so on and. Basically, this is like the literary version of an art of a piece of Art Nouveau artwork. Work, and since I quite like that that sort of style, style, it's um, unfortunately you, you can't really get the originals of anything anymore because they are, you have to go to a museum to see them these days. They're very, very expensive, expensive. But um, when I was younger, you could still sometimes see them in the see the cheaper ones in the windows of um, antique stores, and that's really what this reminds me of of the Art Nouveau right, like, vases and so on. It's it's a little right, bit really, right, like Alphonse Mucha poster. There's yeah, always like the, the women's Mucha yeah. or Mucha, however yeah. you want to pronounce them, yeah. and um, Henry van der Felde, um, yeah. um, René Lalique. There's a lot of them. Right, right. And then from sort of more sort of grotesque sort of um, fairy tale, like Harry Clark illustrations from like the various uh, fairy tale collections from around the turn of the century, um, I think also have a linkage to something like that, like Aubrey that aesthetic. That Clark yeah. Yeah. Aubrey Beardsley, Harry Clark, and um, a couple others in that, in that vein. Sort of very attenuated lines, very long and very attenuated lines that, again, seem more plant like. I think that would, is, is definitely a good uh, usage right there. So, in fact, Harry Clark is having a moment because people are taking a lot of Harry Clark illustrations and writing monsters for them for D anD D, you know, <laughs> as as a freelance, you know. So that's that aesthetic. I think is very popular right now in in fantasy roleplay. One other thing that I thought was really kind of fun was the scene where um, with the with the with the vampire flowers, where Mald Webb uh, walks up and they start kind of like surrounding him and wrapping their vines around him. And the way that he gets free is by shouting out their true name. So I just kind of imagined him being like, Sarah Michelle, <laughs> let go of me. And then the flower's like, oh God, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, the true name is of course an old, um, an old way to control a wizard or monster or demon by knowing their true name. And that's of course what he did. Here. Yeah. But also actually the vampire flower women I basically envision vision them as a sort of a, sort of an art nouveau vase with a flower with a woman coming out of flowers. They are actually are statuists and so on, so on like that. That's literally what I envisioned when I read the story. Like, okay, well, the web is saving the pretty pretty vampire flower flower women who look like art nouveau vases. Okay, who wouldn't save them from the evil lizard people? 
and again, it's that it's that aesthetic choice, right? That's that's all that's kind of left. Uh, you know, when there's no more morality, then all that's left is aesthetics, right? And that's again, I think Jeff, your point to um, uh, Elric and Melnibony, which we just read, right? You know, they have all they torture all these people to create the perfect sounds for the choir in Melnibony yeah. and that kind of stuff like that. So that's very more. Which copy. I just used in my D and D game just this, <laughs> just yesterday. There you go. Yeah, of course. And, um, yeah, I would imagine. I mean, if we ever have Michael Moorcock on again, we'll definitely ask him straight up. But I would, I'm, I'm sure he read Clark Ashton Smith, and of course he read all the decadence. Like, oh, yeah, he like Baudelaire. Did. No, and, I think. Yeah, yeah, we know he did because yeah. I mean, he's he put out that like what was it the hundred fantasy books that he recommends? And yeah. Clark Ashton Smith is absolutely on that list. Yeah, like, no, yeah. uh, Moorcock yeah. has read Clark Ashton Smith and definitely yeah. recommends that others read him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, actually, the other person I think it would be uh, a modern illustrator who I think would be perfect for Clark Cash and Smith would be um, Pete Craig Russell, who did actually do a lot of the Elric comics in the early 80s. Um, so his, his stuff is incredible. Um, so I think that would be a, a really, like, good convergence of their, their aesthetics. Yeah, I think Barry Winter Smith also could have done it. I don't know if they, I don't, they didn't they do Clark Ashton Smith comics. I mean, they, they did when they're doing the Seventh Sword of Conan era, they did a lot of uh, of sword and sorcery stuff in comics, but I don't think anybody ever did Clark Ashton Smith, at least not as far as I know. But I'm pretty sure Barry Winter Smith no, I... could have done a really great version of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I also felt like there was a moment in The Dweller in the Gulf, which was also incredibly anti D&D, which I loved. Um, it's this 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 part right here. What's the use of going further? Said Maspic. <laughs> I, for one, have had enough of darkness already. And if we were to find anything by going on, it would be valueless or, at the very least, unpleasant. Yeah, <laughs> he was very you right. Hear... He was very right. He was right. He was right. very, he was very right. Might be very old school. Might be very old school D anD. d Might be like you know. Okay, that's the second level of the dungeon. We're still first level characters. What's the use of going down there? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh... Of course, um, the way they still get forced further is, of course, something any GM could use if you have some if you have some players who are simply like, okay, why are we exploring this dungeon? Who cares? Let's go home, home, and yeah, then you can come up with a blind. Okay, here was a blind, cadent Martian, Yorhees, and so on, and later the monster. Right, right. You know this, and you know when they're trying to find their way out, it's always t- by the time you say that, it's always too late. Right in a Clark Cash and Smith story, so that's what you do. You, you, <laughs> right, by the time you say we should turn around, and that's the way it should be in your D and D game as well, too. <laughs> right. You can even if you think you escape in a Clark Ashton Smith story, just before you get out, the monster, the, the black cow, jumping cow monster, or the, the thing which pokes out your eyes will get you anyway. Right. <laughs> or Margaret will turn you into a um, into an ape. But he'll, you know, he'll keep your head around so that you can actually yeah. understand what's going on. That's, that's the best part. <laughs> there was also a monster I really liked in the Maze of Mauled Web when he was going through the labyrinth. And at one point, he sees that um, he sees the face of Athli. She's like in the water and she's drowning. And then he reaches in to save her. And it's just this like gross, weird blob that was like projecting the image. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's a, of course, that's a great one. Also to trap um, unwary players, like uh, you, they see something, oh, there's a drowning woman or a child or something, and jump in, and yes, and they're gone. <laughs> and there was also um, a moment, too, that felt very much like where the, the brown mold and the yellow mold from the um, old school D&D books came from, where they walk up to the mummy, and as soon as they touch the mummy, it just like collapses and just turns into all this mummy dust everywhere, and everybody's like... 
yeah, that, that becomes a problem for them. Yeah. Uh, the problem, of course, is not so much the mummy dust, but uh, the thing, but uh, the thing which ate uh, the but those brain eating cowls. That's a big problem. Yes. Which then attacks <laughs> the archaeologist. <laughs> Uh, it's funny you mentioned the mummy dust because it's also, I remember it's also used as fertilizer for uh, the, the flower, the chief evil flower in uh, the uh, the demon of the flower. That's they use the, the, the dust of uh, kings, uh, um, the mummy dust of kings is, is used as the fertilizer. So, <laughs> and that was always a constant theme of, of again, of mummies in uh, the, the Zothique stories. There's always mummies yeah. going on there. Yes. Of course, mummy dust also was used for alchemical purposes and so on. They, a lot of, of Egyptian mummies have been lost because um, people ground them up and used the, the dust for some kind of rituals or, or alchemy. Mm-hmm. And also people people ate them too. Yes. Right. <laughs> and I remember people actually... It. Yeah. There'd be mummy unwrapping parties. Right. I actually also even heard that... Um, at one point, I guess because a lot of the mummies were preserved with basically an early form of tar, that it was during the colonial era, they were just like, oh, well, it's cheaper than bringing coal over from Europe. We'll just throw the mummies into the train train thing. You know, that'll be the fuel for our locomotives. You know, we just have so many mummies lying around. We'll just, you know. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> it's very colonial. Nowadays, um, <laughs> any, okay, now, you know, a lot of, but some museums still have, have mummies on display. Some of, a lot of them have by now put them back in storage or returned them because of, uh, it's kind of because of issues with um, displaying displaying right, human right. bodies, which of course is understandable. Right, right. And I know that the other thing they're doing is now, obviously, we have so much better uh, medical imaging technology that they're not doing the unwrappings anymore. They're using the, you know, the medical yes, imagers to try to see what's going on in there. Yeah. But now I feel like I want to play in a game where people are using mummies as coal fuel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just throwing mummies into the... Yeah. the <laughs> and then they, they hit the wrong mummy and it's a, it's like mm. an ancient wizard or pharaoh. And yes, then yeah. you, you get the revenge of the, of the mummy which is real, who's really right. pissed off that his attendants have been thrown into the fire or his concubines right. or whatever. Right. Well, I think, Jeff, I think that's a great idea. Specifically, the mummy the, as coal fuel specifically, but a whole sort of very necromantic campaign where everything, the whole eco- economy is necromantic, right? You have zombies. We, we know that zombies are a metaphor for, uh, or an actual fear that, you know, Haitians had of, of, you know, death still not being enough, you know, that they would still be enslaved, right? But mm-hmm. zombies as labor, uh, mummies as medicine or fuel, um, all these other things, like a whole necromantically based campaign. And then whether the player characters are part of that system and are benefiting from that. They're necromancers, you know, working their way up and, you know, mastering that or whether they're trying to overthrow that or whether they're actually, they're the actual undead and saying, no, this is not cool. We just, we just want to be dead. Come on, leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like we need to call David Beatty because I feel like the three of us just wrote a weird frontiers adventure with like, they're they're in a trail across, you know, the old West, uh, (laughs) in a train across the old West and throw Throwing the mummies into the into the the coal, but then one of them's evil. And yep, I, I love yep. it. This is great. You could also bo- you could also borrow the whole world from the Doom of Antarion, which is also well like some kind of giant necropolis because they're death, they're more death obsessed than even the Egyptians were were right, the, yes. uh, on the planet. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Cora, we are running out of time. Um, is there anything that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get to? Uh, no, not at the moment. Okay, perfect. And are there any projects that you're working on that you would like people to be aware of? Um, well, um, I'll be run. Well, the 
2023 Worldcon in Chicago will be in Chicago. 2022, sorry, will be in Chicago, and uh, they would have run the Retro Hugos from 1947 for stories from 1946. They won't be running them, but they will be having a 1946 retrospective project, which I will be running. So we will be taking a look at the science fiction, fantasy, horror of the 1946. And yes, that's something. Uh, it's still in the very beginning stages, but um, it's something I'd like to plug and. Uh, as for projects, um, sometime, I don't know, it's still in editing, editing, but um, I will be publishing a new novella in my Kurval uh, Sword and Sorcery series called The Black Knight, which should come out uh, maybe probably later this month. Right, Very and cool. we'll be able to find that on Amazon in all you the regular places. You can find on any place where ebooks are sold. And eventually probably Perfect. in print, but print formatting takes time. Sure, sure. And also, where can we find you online if we want to uh, read your writings or, or, or other? Uh, well, you, know, just you keep, can keep find up on me at um, kurabulat.com. That's okay. C-O-R-A-B-U-H-L-E-R-T.com. And uh, that's basically my main site. Um, I also have a couple of others. If you only want to read my, my reviews of vintage science fiction, which I initially started doing for the for the Retro Hugos, but then expanded to other things, then you, you should go to Retro's SF Reviews, which is a blogspot site. And yes, you can also find me on Twitter under at Bulat. And you can find my books wherever you can wherever you can buy ebooks, you can find my books. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Cool. And Hoy, where can folks find us? Yes, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, drop us a line at Appendix N. Uh, book club at gmail.com we're also on twitter at at appendix underscore n uh, if you like us please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice it does help people find us and jeff how about our patreon yeah so our patrons can now help us choose the books that we are going to be covering on future episodes the patron poll for episode 103 has closed and the winner of that poll is mervin peaks titus grown so that'll be a really exciting story to cover I've been wanting to read that one. And once this episode drops, um, we'll have a new poll open for episode 107. And the four titles that we're voting on for episode 107 are Helen Oyeyemi's White is for Witching, Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, Elsprague DeCamp's The Carnelian Cube, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. So you can head on over to our Patreon and vote on what you would like to see covered on episode 107. Also, our patrons get to join us for our patron book club, which happened before we record the episodes with our special guests. And this week we had a full house. We were joined by Joseph Hoopman, Jeremy Harper, Matt Richards, Dan Alexander, Adam Stiers, and Brandon Cruz. Thank you all for joining us. And we'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons as well. Ethan Schoonover, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, Beckett Warren, Robbie Fioto, Angelo Chiriaco. Matt Hildebrand, Jared Logan, and Eric Johnson. Thank you all so much for your support. And Cora, thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I had a great time, and yes, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Absolutely, Cora. It's really an honor to have you on. Absolutely. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.